Hello, welcome to On the Marie Curie Couch, the podcast that aims to break down taboos and start open, honest conversations about death and dying. I'm Jason Davidson. I'm a social worker by profession, and I've worked in palliative care, hospice care, and bereavement support services for many years. Each episode, we'll be speaking to a well-known guest to find out about how they feel about their own mortality and how their personal experience of bereavement has shaped the way they live their lives. Today, I'm on the Marie Curie couch with Janet Ellis. Janet's a broadcaster, actress and novelist. She's best known for presenting the popular children's TV programme Blue Peter during the 1980s. She's got three grown-up children, including her eldest daughter, the singer Sophie Ellis-Bexter. And Janet lives in London with her husband John and their beloved dog, Angela. Janet Ellis, welcome to the Marie Curie Couch. Thank you. It's comfortable. Good to see you. (laughs) It's great. Are you okay if we just dive straight in? Absolutely. Nothing's off limits. Can you tell us about an experience you've had where someone significant in your life has died? There have been several. I am an orphan, although I don't know whether at 64 you can describe yourself as such. But I still think losing your parents at whatever age you are makes you feel different about the world, casts you adrift in a way. And particularly dauntingly, my children then started referring to me as the matriarch, which I'm not sure sits entirely well. But um, there is something about that baton handed over which is significant. I was 35 when my mother died. She was 57. I was pregnant with my youngest child. She had secondary cancer. And to be honest, I wasn't as shocked by her death then as I am now. And I think it's a combination of things that, first of all, she'd been ill, very ill, for a year. And I think when anyone does have a serious illness that everybody understands will finish with them, that unless you are recreating a Victorian Christmas card, you you don't have conversations at the bedside, I don't think, of significance, because... For us anyway, we were very close. So we carried on having the conversations, which were mostly trivial, usually funny, and occasionally touched on something deeper because that was our relationship. And I think, therefore, she was able to let us go too. I have a younger sister. I think she let us go very generously. And although I don't think there's anything... Uh, like a template for any of this. Nothing at all. Everything is different, however much you prepare for it. There is something in that generosity which I think is amazing. The only thing I really regret about the actual time of her death is that the one thing we hadn't discussed was her funeral. Right. My father was 58, so, you know, looking back now, obviously much younger than I am now, you know, no age at all. Um, and we were rushed into a terrible set of decisions with a 
vicar we'd never met before who kind of got her name a bit wrong and we chose a particular hymn with a particular tune and he ordered the wrong one. So if anything, I just thought it's so important to get this right. It's so important. It's it's your party planning. You really have to make sure that everybody understands who it was we're talking about and who they continue to be to everybody in the room. Mm. So when my father died, which was about four years ago now, we had that. He'd made notes and we had we planned it afterwards in a way that brought all of us even closer and yeah so obviously for mine there's pretty much a whole book about 400 pages it'll it'll be exhausting for them <laughs> carrying out my funeral demands <laughs> <laughs> I was interested when you said that your mum's death was impacting on you now in a different way so many years later than it did at the time. Yes, yes. I mean, at the time, of course it's shocking. And even though she was very ill, the finality of it, the whatever that is about death, the absolute end of all those conversations and the beginning of something extraordinary and continuing, I think is something you adjust to all the time. And after all, she died, you know, I was pregnant with Martha. Martha's 28. And I still have things happen to me. And more often than not, they're good things that I think, oh, gosh, I'll tell, I'll tell Ma. I'll tell her. And it's, it's, that, it's not even fleeting. It's a solid, real thing. And the getting past that to the fact I can't is difficult every time. Mm. And she was, you know, like I say, we were very close. And she was a really lovely woman who thought she was a great deal more broad-minded than she was, actually. <laughs> but we humoured that. Um, but I, I miss, I know exactly what she'd say about things. I'm pretty sure I could predict what she would say. But I really miss her saying it in her voice. Mm. Really miss that. And the same with my dad, who, was, who, who rose to the challenge of being without her magnificently because they were incredibly close as a couple. And it would have been almost impossible to imagine one without the other. And within six months of her death, he had met someone else. And I can honestly say, and on heart, thank goodness, because he met a lovely woman who cared for him, loved him, walked with him on his interminable walking holidays, and cared for him in the, in the last couple of years, really, of his life, which was bound up with a lot of hospital visits and things like that. Mm. So beautifully, so beautifully. So, and he had... Really happy time with her. Really and not happy. everybody is always sure of it, are they, you know, in those situations? No, they're not. But I, th I thought very clearly that my mother had taught him that two is good, that being in a couple was a good thing. And he learnt that lesson really well and he found someone else. Mm. And to have thought of him on his own for all that time... And then with my sister and I worrying about, you know, does he want to come? Does he want to, you know, is he happy to come? How long does he want to come for? Would have been a different relationship with him. So, you know, we were all really happy with what happened next, genuinely. That's nice. When you talked about your mum, you used the word continuing mm. a few times. I was interested in what continues. Well, I actually, I'm a humanist. I think this is it. So I do not derive any particular comfort from the idea that we meet again. Now, I know this is very personal. Many people hold on to that. Mm -hmm. And that is absolutely entirely up to them. 
And I find my humanist views as comforting as I think they do their spiritual ones. I am passionate about the human being. I think we are extraordinary, amazing, continually. The good things and the bad and the awful and the terrible and the unimaginable. And what we're able to create, what we're able to do, what we're able to feel is a daily source of miracles. But it is daily. It isn't in some future life. And daily, I carry with me what my parents were to me. And it doesn't necessarily have to evolve. You know, like I say, they were the people they were. And because I was very fond of them, and because I always used to think if I met them separately, I would like them. You know, obviously, I love them. That I I know who they are to me all the time. And that's the way I carry them in my heart. And it isn't about some future or even about some around spiritual sort of presence, which I'm sure if I felt that I would be able to define more kindly. But it is for me, it's much more robust. It's about the internalizing of all that, that love, all those feelings, those people, and carrying them about. And it influences my choices often, and it certainly influences the way I am with my children. Mm. Has that helped you? in your grief? Well, I suppose it sort of has to in as much as anything can. You know, grief, I think, is like a a cheese grater. It's got lots of different sides and sometimes it's the big sort, which is obvious to everybody because it slices them too. Other times it's small and a cut and brief. And I think it surprises you. It surprises me when I feel it. It's not often the predictable things. Since my parents died, I've been to other funerals. I've been to the funerals of close friends Mm -hmm. who left much too soon. But it doesn't wake up old grief for me. It just sort of absorbs a different sort. And also along the way, and this, this is public knowledge in as much as I've shared this because it seemed relevant at the time, after my last child was born, I had 10 miscarriages and I have not had a fourth child. So that finished with the last miscarriage. And my way of marking that is particular as well. So I do think, you know, it's it's all sides of this cheese grater. And to continue this crashing uh, analogy, one side is smooth. One side does not have to cut you at all. One side is almost warm to the touch because you have to know things finish to know that the lasting things are there for you. You know, if it was all cut and dried to me, if it was all, you know, this this finishes now and you'll feel like this and then we'll move on to the next. For a start, I wouldn't be able to write anything. But secondly, I would not be able to make sense of that at all. So I think that the tangled nature of it helps in a way that it's an acceptance that we cannot undo that tangle. We cannot make it better. We cannot go back and change things. And I'm not actually on that subject a great one for either revisiting or regret. I don't know what that says about me psychologically. So when your mum was ill, um, was that for a long period of time? Were you involved in her care and support when she was living with cancer? She had breast cancer four years before she died and then three years in remission, anyway, without appointments, and then got secondaries in her lung and died a year after they were diagnosed. And I'm aware, talking about that, that first of all, I now live with somebody who has secondary lung cancer. 
but also that she died 28 years ago. And things have shifted even in that time mm. about the way that people are cared for. She was at home when she died, which I'm glad about simply because I know she loved that house and that room and her things around her. And my dad rang first thing in the morning to say. And I do remember that sort of punch as though all the air has left. And when you breathe in, you're not breathing in the same amount or the right quality or quantity of oxygen for a long time. It's a very physical thing, isn't it? Mm. That initial grief. But we were living our own lives. I lived really close to her. I mean, I was about 20 minutes away. But I had two young children, and she knew there was another on the way, although, to be honest, I think we both realised she would probably not meet Martha. But she, again, with enormous generosity, did not insist that time altered for us. So I remember that time as a bizarrely comfortable one. Going to see her a lot, but because we did live close by, not having to make a huge and special effort, which sounds as though it, it was peaceful, it wasn't. And it also sounds a bit, I think, as though I didn't know what was going to happen, and I did. But maybe we had unilaterally understood that the relationship we had would only end in one way. Would, you know, I would then carry on with the way I am with my children, hopefully, and certainly the huge and instructive way she loved us was a, a blanket I could always wrap around me, really. But the, the really strict, straight answer to your question is that we did not make any particular effort to do that. And when I look back, I think, gosh, you know, we left it kind of all to my dad. And when I think now of what happened and particularly going through what I'm going through with John, I think that was that was a hell of a thing he had to cope with because John at the moment is, you know, there is no prognosis here. So although a little while ago I would not have been able to talk about his diagnosis without weeping simply because that seemed to go hand in hand, we have, uh, whatever you do, acclimatised, understood that this is it. Um, so we are now in the procedure of him having three weekly chemo sessions and we have adjusted to this new unwarranted and completely bizarre timetable. However, we have, we have managed so far, touching lump of wood here, to do it. But somehow with my dad, I think my sister and I left him to it a lot. And mm. because he was the sort of person he was, he wouldn't ever have said, blimey girls, I need a bit of help here, or afterwards, where were you? So the whole thing didn't feel as though the, the tempo changed in an odd way. And I've, I don't know, I wouldn't care to judge it for myself or my sister. I don't know whether that's a good or bad thing. I don't know. Sometimes people say they don't know how to help or they don't know what to do. And I was just reminded again about if people don't have a conversation, if families or friends or whoever's significant around you, if those conversations aren't happening about, yeah. well... You know, how can I help or what needs to be done or what's the tough bit at the minute? You know, what's the 
easy bits. Yes, it's it's about two things, isn't it? It's about clarity, actually, mm. because, you know, we've got everything available to us in terms of language to say, and yet we kind of make huge cushions and put that in the way and then say, oh, sorry, the message has been muffled because of this very large cushion. And actually, if you just kick that out the way and say what you're thinking, which is often difficult and unpalatable both to say and to hear. Mm. And I know that certainly when John was first diagnosed, I was so angry. <laughs> I was just angry. Um, obviously, I, you know, I, I'm an actress. I've got lots of friends in the business. So this this worked for me, this analogy. One of my closest friends said, that is such bad casting that it's John. You know, I just wouldn't give him that role. I just wouldn't. And it really <laughs> made me laugh and it made sense. But that anger, blimey. And because we are very close and because I I think over the years I've I've taught John to say what he's feeling and thinking, which wouldn't probably have come naturally to him initially. I could tell him that and he could say it to me as well, that there is no buffer for that. There's nothing else but what the actual how dare life do this. And we're realistic about stuff. You know, we've had unhappy times before. John lost his own father when he was only 16 and his mother died quite a few years ago now and had Alzheimer's for 10 years. So, you know, that's again another bereavement, I think, losing someone who ostensibly looks and sounds the same but isn't really there for you. Mm -hmm. But we do talk. I think probably it's probably slightly more my voice, <laughs> but that doesn't mean to say John isn't there and listening. And when he does, we talk about everything. We do a lot of walking together. And I think there's something about being side by side that helps as well, so that you're not actually across the table trying to uh, shift about in your seat and avoid eye contact. Not that I would with him. But I, I do think that's true. That we just don't talk about it. And we don't, we don't sort of celebrate is completely the wrong word, but... Somehow, all these these powerful things that are given to us, I think you just have to mentally strip and feel them sometimes, however awful, and God knows they are awful. And equally, having those difficult conversations with people, I think, is, is a relief. It's a relief because otherwise it builds up in your head and your heart until... It threatens you, and you're losing enough oxygen anyway with all this, so you just need to be able to breathe with someone. I'd like to move on now and just have a conversation about, think about our own mortality. And you've already spoken about your book of plans for your <laughs> funeral. <laughs> but I, I realise I have actually very little say over it when the time comes, so a lot of the plans that I've put in place may well be either prohibitively expensive... <laughs> or at least take up a little too much time. Have you, as well as writing those things down and writing them down for yourself and for for your family, have you had conversations with the family as well about maybe, you know, your children? So not just about your death, but have they thought about their deaths? I mean, is is this a conversation you've ever had before? I don't think as specific as that, no. Mm. I mean, we, we do... Communicate as a family, I like to say. Um, you know, it always sounds a bit twee, really, but we see a lot of each other. So I suppose we spot different 
moods in each other, which probably adds up to the same thing, really, as having to make an appointment. I mean, I know we're lucky in that, and people who live further away obviously don't have that continuing conversation. I think when John was diagnosed, everybody had to deal with that in their own way. And we have talked about it, actually not all together for a while. Initially, we did. My main thing was for them to realise that it did not change us. It didn't stop anything being off limits. If somebody is upset about something and it suddenly feels trivial in comparison, I wanted to stop that in its tracks because that's not how we roll. And you're still allowed to shout and swear when you stub your toe. You know, there's not an equivalence here. We're not saying, but you know, dad's got cancer. So really, are you sure you feel really upset about that boy or whatever? You know, they're really really off limits. Mm. So we did, you know, have that conversation. And because we deal with it in the way we do, we joke about what's happening all the time as well. And that other people might not find that helpful. But, you know, for example, the other day, John and I were traveling into town and predictably the tube is a bit busy. And I said, you know what you need is a kind of cancer on board sticker, you know, so that people just realise and then give you a seat. Because yeah. I always try and find him a yeah. seat in a kind of, you know, really, I know. It would really help <laughs> because he looks fine, you know, and also he's the last person to go up and tap someone on the knee and say, I need to sit down. But I do it for him, I don't care. But, uh, yes, you actually do need people to know sometimes. Can I ask how you broke the news to your children about John's cancer? Now, here's a funny thing that he, um, he'd had a tonsil cancer a year or so before. And that diagnosis was, of course, a big shock, you know, because cancer always is. The treatment for that, and he had a particularly robust oncologist, is six weeks of daily radiotherapy. And head and neck cancers, of course, you know, a lot of soft tissue. It's going to be uncomfortable, painful, difficult. Uh, and he took to it like a military regime. You know, he, he was a good patient. And it was just before Christmas, a couple of years ago. And by Christmas, his treatment had just finished. I mean, literally two days before. But, of course, you know, afterwards, for at least six weeks, it's worse. So he got through all that. And by his birthday in March... He was almost able, and this is important, almost able to have a glass of wine again. I mean, for a long time it tasted like petrol, but he manfully tried to find something that he could enjoy. Mm. Anyway, so by his birthday, then he had a scan in April, and it was clear. Then he was going to have a follow-up scan in late November, early December. And in between whiles, we went on a holiday to Japan. We'd been a few times before. This one had a, a chunk where we were walking, and I, I don't know why I thought this. I thought it'd be really flat, and it wasn't. I don't know. I, I sort of imagined us walking along disused railway tracks or something. But, of mm. course, I'm sure they don't even exist in Japan because their railways are amazing. But it was really quite hilly, and there were several bits when I, who, who I'm not twinned with a mountain goat, was hauled up hills by John going, don't look down, you're fine, we're getting there. And that, you know, it was a fantastic holiday. We had a brilliant time. And on the day he got the scan result, we were actually on our way to the opening of Maggie's at Bart's because I've been a supporter of Maggie's for years. So we were a little bit on the dressed-up side. And we went into his um, ENT specialist's office, not thinking it's a formality because how could it be? You know, life's not like that. But kind of thinking, you know, it would be good to hear what we think we're going to hear and then, you know, we've got this to do and then it's Christmas. And as soon as he started saying the words, 
I'm afraid that I could not even look at John. I could not look at him. I was just staring at this man thinking, you seem, you seem to be saying something. And I, it's almost like a rushing mind. It's like, I cannot make sense of what you're saying at all. And what he ended up saying, of course, was that you know, it was all to be confirmed. But initially, John had to go and have a scan straight away. Go and have the scan straight away. And then, then we'll order the biopsy and see what's going on. And we got out into the street and both of us said we wished we didn't have to tell anyone mm. ever that we could somehow go through this, just us, keeping this burning, horrible little secret and keep it to ourselves and not have anyone else worried about it, upset by it, involved with it. Of course, that's ludicrous. And as we were sitting, waiting for him to go into the scan, my youngest, Martha, who works in town, and obviously knew we were going in for this, and she was in her office probably about half a mile away, I should think, and she rang, and I saw her name come up on my phone, and I could not answer it. I was crying too hard. And I thought, well, A, that's the last thing she needs, and also it's not going <laughs> to help because I can't actually say anything. <laughs> So I passed the phone to John, who was able to say, I'm about to have a scan, and that's as much as he could manage. And Martha left her office and sort of appeared in front of us. But it was, but for both of us, we just kept thinking, any minute now, somebody's going to run after us and tap him on the shoulder and say, sorry, John Leach. I th oh, I thought you said, you know, somebody else, Desmond, sorry, sorry. Because we'd had this really taxing holiday, and now he was being told there was something in his lung. And it was just that weird moment, which is illogical because we both, you know, we've got a lovely big circle of friends. We've got people who we would be bereft if we couldn't see anymore for any reason. But just for that moment, we just wanted it to be us. And, and I can still remember how that felt of just not even to protect us, but I think to protect all of them. Mm. And then once Martha was with us and... We went and had a coffee in a place I've been back to since because I didn't want it to feel, you know, I couldn't go past it or anything. And started then phoning the kids. And by then, it was all right to cry to them mm -hmm. because the news was beginning to sound hours. But for a, a few hours, it just didn't. It mm. just didn't. Marie Curie want to change the way the UK talks about death and dying. We believe an open conversation with loved ones now can make life better at the end. For more information on how to start the conversation and free tools and resources to help, visit mariecurie.org.uk forward slash talkabout. Marie Curie, for life to the last. Have your children spoken to you about how they've told their children? Well, only Sophie's got kids at the moment. Um, she's got five of them, so I think my other children are a little worried about the family average, but I've done two, one or two is fine. Um, I know that Sophie has kept it pretty real for her kids. Obviously, they see John a lot, so often when, when they come in, I, I pick a couple of them up from school once a week and when they come in, John is usually, if he's not at work in his third week, he's on the sofa. So I think they're accustomed to him in that position mm -hmm. and they quite like that because, you know, an adult 
recumbent on the sofa with the television on is pretty much, I think, how they think most grown-ups should be. <laughs> and I think because we don't, you know, if he's not feeling great, or even if he is, we just discuss the fact that he has cancer. So we are, to that extent, certainly from my side of things, keeping it real. And I think I would imagine Sophie's doing the same. Mm. Um, but the conversations we have vary, actually, because I I don't want them to lose their lives to this more than it has to. And I felt exactly the same when I was having miscarriages. The younger two were too small to know. And Sophie was a teenager for most of it. And I thought, I don't want her to think this is what life is for me. You know, I that's probably my sort of spirit is that I want to get up and sort myself out and put on a brave face and probably quite a lot of makeup and carry on. Mm. And maybe impersonating that person helps me. But we, we've we had intermittent conversations. I think it, I don't want to speak for any of them because this is theirs to speak yeah. about. But as far as I can tell, they sometimes speak to each other about it. And I hope they do. Mm. I really hope they do because they are the next generation and I can't, I can't get them to where I am. I'm losing, I'm watching my husband ill and that's not their relationship with him and it's mm. always going to be different. And I really hope that we do that for each other. I mean, I know whatever happens, I mean, heaven knows, you know, we could be having this conversation in 20 years' time. Mm. In fact, I said to John's oncologist, I would quite like him to be that anecdote, you know. Amazingly enough, I've got a patient. But she's given us no time limit or timeline at all. Mm. And I know, you know, I'm not daft, I know how unpredictable this stuff is and that, you know, it could be years. But um, I do hope they carry on having conversations together because... If I give them nothing else, I want to give them the support of each other. What helps you or has helped you in your grief? Um, talking about it, definitely. Mm. That, that is my default setting. But I would say it's a really odd one that sometimes you have to really steer the conversation. I think, And I think you have to be selfish about it. At the moment, I don't feel in a, at a point of grief about what's happening with John because our lives at the moment are too big and robust and vital for that. Mm. But initially, when he was diagnosed and I was telling people, as one does, if you've got a lot of people in your life, you're telling people over and over again. And I found I had to sort of steer the conversation away from the understandable and inevitable path of them wishing to be reassured that the cancer that was affecting him was possibly, hopefully, touch wood, unlikely to be something that would happen to them. I completely get that. You know, I think we are all we are to ourselves and the stuff in our heads we can't do an awful lot about. And when somebody, particularly with cancer, is diagnosed, I think there is an inevitable tendency to kind of go, oh, could that be me? We know the statistics. We know how many people are diagnosed. But you still kind of hope that the other person has done the one in two for you. <laughs> and they're going to carry that on and you will be taken by something else. So particularly with a cancer like John's, which initially being um, a tonsil one head and neck linked to HPV virus, you know, people want to kind of know all that. And I found myself steering the conversation away, really, from his notes, from his clinical descriptions, 
from the possibility that they might look through an imaginary page and go, oh, no, me too, or me never, to something that involved us again as friends, that we could then order another cappuccino and talk about something else, but to do with it. It's always present. Yeah. I always liken it to um, the way it is when you put your mobile phone on the table, having a conversation with somebody, a different conversation with somebody, and the mobile phone is there, and although you are not looking at it and, you know, if it rings, you may choose to ignore it, you're always aware of it. For a start, you don't want it nicked. Plus, it has a kind of presence for you that involves some other thing that might be, you might call, you might be waiting for, or you didn't expect. And I think living with cancer is a bit like that. And I think um, with people who haven't seen us for a while, there is an inevitable medical catch-up. And... We both felt, actually, that with the article I wrote for, for the Mail about what's happening, it might be quite a useful thing for people who need a bit of a refresher um, because uh, people do struggle to get their heads around the fact that it's not curable. They really do, you know, and they always come up with, oh, yeah, you know, um, friend, son, mother, parent, uh, people, I, somebody I read about had that and, you know, and then, and they're fine now. And you think, well... We are fine now, but we're differently fine. But that's the bit I've struggled do you, do to communicate. Think, do you think that's because they can't bear the thought of it not being fine? So oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. For themselves. For themselves, for us, yes, for him. You know, he's an enormously popular person and, yes, all that. But I think it is equally that I don't think we are particularly well-equipped to deal with those big things. Mm. And, in fact, when... When something awful happens, you know, you lose a parent, a partner's diagnosed, you have a miscarriage or something. I actually think, certainly our family think like this, that we, there's a limit to the amount that you can think about that. You know, somehow something has to stop it. And I do think friends are massively useful for that <laughs> because they simply crash in with their own lives, you know, hang their coat up and say, okay. Um, but I did want to guide the conversation a bit away from, you know, how could it be me? And I, yes, of course, because the very thing we're talking about, the thing that is present all the time, is that we die. And I personally think people just die. They don't. They don't pass on. They don't go across somewhere. They they stop being alive, but they don't stop living in you. And it's. That's the thing I carry mm. all the time. Mm. Has there been any planning conversations? So um, often in the hospice and in our work, we'll try and talk to people early on, no matter no matter what stage of an illness, but to have conversations about planning for the future. And so, you know, we touched on it a bit before, you know, thinking about your funeral plans. <laughs> But when you're living with a terminal illness, those conversations take on a different... They do. Not yet. Um, mm. When John was first diagnosed, he went into strategic financial planning in a fairly terrifying way, right. um, wanting to make sure everything was sorted for me. But mm. at that stage, we both knew logically that we didn't know how long, and we still don't know how long. And I suspect whatever anyone said, we would still not know how long, because I don't think you can take that in. But 
we haven't had those forward planning discussions. So the financial planning bit, which is really important. Yeah, 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 absolutely. He he went at it like a terrier. It's most alarming. I'd never sat with a financial advisor before and I had to do quite a lot of it. And yeah, he was absolutely determined. Mm -hmm. And and a lot of that, I think, is because uh, I think I'm quite fluent um, with the words, but the number's not so good. And I think he just wanted to make darn sure. Mm -hmm. I know, he wants to make darn sure that (laughs) it's not... And we, Not we, just left up to me for a start. And we encourage that, you know. I oh, think do you? Kind of, yeah, mm. to, to, to have conversations about finances yeah. and some of those more practical, like writing a will. Yes, yes. We had done that before, um, so we've sort of made, made sure that's topped up and everybody's the right sort of age and stage. But, but the planning ones, I think we both feel that we will deal with the situations as they present, but knowing that we will deal with them. You know, I don't think it will go unsaid. Um, ages and ages ago, John and I had a conversation about what music, I mean, this is long before um, he was ill, about what music we'd have at our funerals. And I was really miffed that three of his choices were from a time before he knew me, which I thought was very inappropriate. So I've got time to work on that, <laughs> at least. Because that Jackson Brown track, really, that was, oh, I really hope we can get around that. <laughs> Actually, my dad had funeral choices too and one of them there were so many versions of this song it was a it was um an Andrew Lloyd Webber and many people have recorded it some more successfully than others but of course he hadn't said which one so this song that my sister and I didn't like so much as he did we had to listen to really a lot until we had come down on the side of one of these versions of the song but also at his funeral, because we we did, you know, having learned from what happened with my mother, we did make it much more about him. I mean, really, if you lose the person who's there, then what is it all for? It, whether you believe in, in God or whatever or not, it's still got to be about that person and their life. And I know I felt that so I was great friends with um, Karen Keating, who was on Blue Peter with me, who died much too young of breast cancer. And... Um, her funeral was her. You know, she was so there. It was almost unfathomable that she wasn't going to be sitting outside when we all came out saying, that was great, wasn't it? Didn't you love it? Mm. And it felt proper and real. And it's a, I don't know, it sounds a bit pompous, but it is a different sort of grief, I think. The My mother's funeral felt a thin thing, so unlike her, and just a bit, Drizzly, and it was June, so it really shouldn't have felt like that. Mm. Should not have felt like that. But my dad's was actually in the winter, and we um, had everybody there too, all Sophie's kids, however many there were then, all came, and she sang, and her then uh, 10 year old, her then was he six, he's now 10, uh, had a predilection for taking off quite a lot of his clothes, and he did that. And nobody minded. My dad certainly wouldn't have minded. But, That's yeah, great. it did feel like us and like him mm. rather than this strange thing with him getting her name wrong and the wrong tune. And it also makes you shuffle about, doesn't it, in an almost Orton-esque way because it's just so in- absolutely incongruous that somebody would stand up and give the wrong name to the person there when you know it. You kind of want to shout out. <laughs> yeah. I don't know, can you heckle at funerals? I don't know. We didn't. But it feels like you should. Why not? Next time. <laughs> so yours is going to be a big affair. Will there be any Andrew well, Lloyd Webber? Yeah, no, there won't. Um, but weirdly enough, for somebody who, who um, does not believe in God, I love hymns. 
I was always in the choir at school, so I know loads of hymns. So there's going to be a few of those anyway. Right. And although obviously there are musicians in my family, so I'm pretty sure that, you know, they'll rock up with the old tunes and the great singing. I also want to make sure there's some sort of choir because I'm always slightly allergic to those um, hymns where nobody can quite get the top note. and it, <laughs> It's always going to be tricky. They're, usually they're written with such a big musical span. Morning is broken. That's almost impossible for people to sing. So you need a choir, I think, just to sort of give it some bottom yeah. to make sure that it sounds like proper music. And I did used to say that, you know, um, after I'm gone... Uh, I don't want any of this, you know, getting up two seconds later and carrying on as normal because that's what I would have wanted because it isn't. I want them pretty paralysed for about two years. And then I thought about that and I thought, actually, if they take that seriously, they will, first of all, see that's really not how I deal with life and also most unfair as a, as a stricture, most unfair. So actually, kids, get up and out and do that thing. But, yeah, remember that I thought it. <laughs> Is legacy something that's important to you? Um, it's a, it's a funny one, that, isn't it? Because I, I suppose in some ways I've got the opportunity for something solid left behind, you know, two, two books, some old bits of tape. But that really isn't, isn't about how I think of myself. Mm. And it isn't, no, I, I don't know. I, I certainly don't think it's about solid, chunky legacy or things I have done. But I, I'd like, I'd like people to just think that I, I did it okay. Really, looked after people okay, was mostly kind where I should have been. Picked up litter. I'd like to be remembered for that because I'm really keen on that. And that I didn't take it too seriously. But on the other hand, I am, like I said, overwhelmed by what people are capable of. But I'm still super aware of how fragile all this is, how unpredictable. And I try and get a sense of something like joy from it when you get past the anger and the grief that there is still an amazing sunset somewhere. I don't mean to sound like a Clinton's card here, but but I think I have to think like that now because otherwise the temptation to just hide away initially was so great that I would not have been able to have anything like this conversation because I was paralysed by a kind of anger which had no end point. Couldn't even be angry at anything. Mm. <laughs> Wasn't even there. Mm. <laughs> Couldn't focus. Couldn't have a row back. I mean, John John doesn't have rows with me. I have rows at him sometimes, but he's really bad at the other page of script. And with this one, it was even worse because it really, there was nothing. Talk mm. about howling into the absolute ether. Nothing back. Just before we finish, is there any um, maybe practical tips or advice you might give to somebody listening who is maybe going through something similar to you and John or is maybe grieving? You're not on your own. You really are not on your own. And there will be somebody there who understands in the way that you want them to. Marie Curie obviously is... is an amazing place for people to explore how they might feel about dealing with it. I think sometimes grieving is like being in a room that you think is sealed and actually you can't see it. It's built into the wall, but there is a handle and there is a room next door and beyond that somewhere else that you might find more comfortable. It isn't 
a time-limited process. I always think that's really important for people, that grief can catch you unawares years and years later, and equally it can leave you for a moment when you think you might feel it most. And all of that, I think, is fine. But there will be somebody to support you, somebody unlikely. And I think one of the things that's revealed with what's happened with John is that some people that unexpectedly have been extraordinary about helping us deal with this. And we do need help. For all our, we don't want to tell anyone, we do need help. And John's found that an amazing thing, that some people are just sensitive in a way we didn't expect or empathetic in a way we couldn't have predicted. But I think, personally, I would say, please don't be alone with this, because in that room there is nothing except you trying to find the door or hunkered in the middle of it, doubting you'll ever leave. But someone on the other side of it is knocking faintly. Listen, listen hard, you'll find them. Walk towards the sound. Thank you, Janet Ellis. Thank you for sharing your story and for being on the Marie Curie couch with me today. And it's been an absolute pleasure and joy to meet you. It really has. Thank you. So that's all for this episode of On the Marie Curie Couch. We hope it's got you thinking about matters of life and death and perhaps starting those conversations with your own friends and family. Marie Curie's here to help. From planning ahead to coping with bereavement, you can talk through any concerns you have around the end of life with our support line team, which includes specially trained nurses. Call us on 0800 090 2309 or search Marie Curie online. Join us next time when we'll be talking to Oscar-winning filmmaker and writer Dustin Lance Black. This podcast is made by Marie Curie, a national charity that supports people affected by terminal illness. For more information and support, you can visit our website, mariecurie.org.uk. The podcast is produced and edited by Marie Curie with support from Ultimate Sound and Vision. The music featured is Time Lapse by Pan Oceanic. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please do like and subscribe. Thanks for listening, and until next time, goodbye. <laughs>